Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Christy Dennison. Christy is a machine learning engineer at OpenAI. Christy, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Fantastic. So you've been at OpenAI for coming up on a year now. I guess you started there in January and you've been working on Dota, the Dota 2 project there. And uh, well, tell us about some of your experiences since joining that team. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, it's I've gotten to learn everything from interfacing with the game to also our machine learning architecture. It's really, it's super interesting. Um, as a machine learning engineer, I've gotten to add features so the model can observe different parts of the game. And I've also gotten to learn about how we actually interface with the game. So think like if you wanted to you know, have a bot play in Dota. They do have an API, but there's a lot of a lot of things to understand there. It's not just, we don't look at pixels. So instead of pixels, you have to use the API and find ways to represent that in a way that our model can understand it. Were you a Dota player before joining OpenAI? Uh, I have to admit that uh, I don't play Dota very well, and I did not play beforehand uh, or many games at all. But I hope by helping... OpenAI 5, that uh, it can play well for me on my behalf. <laughs> I think you and I both are in that same boat. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't know much about the game at all, or at least I didn't until learning about it in the context of what OpenAI is doing. And I suspect that there are plenty of folks in our audience that don't know much about the game. So Maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, Dota, starting from, you know, why is it an interesting uh, environment around which to experiment with AI? Sure. So, again, this is a research company. So our, our we don't just play games all day. Our One of the things we really are trying to do with Dota is use it as a testbed for these RL algorithms, and that's reinforcement learning. So... Why Dota? Uh, we've seen a lot of strides recently with, or, or even actually not just recently, for decades with chess and Go. And the real question is, what do you do next, right? You want something that's close to the real world. And that's the main application for a lot of AIs to the world. Like, how well can you affect the real world? Uh, Dota is probably one of the most complex in terms of strategy games that are popular out there right now. So there's tons of people who have already been playing it for forever, and or at least as long as it's existed. And um, it's a complex game, not just because of, oh, well, there, it's not just an 8x8 board, because the board does have a size, right? You have a, you have a map in Dota, and you have two sides, uh, two t- different teams that try to fight each other, and... There are these buildings you try to destroy, and eventually there's one building, and you destroy. They call it the Ancient. If you destroy this particular building, you win the game. And it's not as simple as just, you know, taking all your characters and charging right at that other building, because there is this complex rule set that makes it so that you can't just simply win in one way. And that's something that they do a really good job at, at these you know, multiplayer games is try to keep everything balanced. So there's lots of items you can use that can give you certain advantages at different parts in the game. Um, 
they also have some downsides in some cases, or they don't give you strength in another area, or they cost money, and you have to get money by killing these little minions that each side has. Um, there's a there's a ton of complexity behind Dota, and I I would take many of your episodes to get through it all. I think, but the the core of the issue is that um, it's a great test bed for reinforcement learning because it's so complex because you can't understand it in as simple of an eight by eight board. Is there any one particular factoid or metric that kind of captures for you the complexity of the game? Well, okay. So I think the thing that really makes it interesting, I think from a machine learning perspective is that there's partial information and that's all you work off of is partial information all day long. Uh, Each side has this, what they call a fog of war and it covers the, your enemy's team. And unless you place certain items in certain spots, you can't see things. And if you can't see, how are you supposed to win? How are you supposed to attack the enemy? Um, So this partial information is, I think, probably the reason that makes it the most complex. Is Because if you did know where everyone was, it would be a lot easier game. So OpenAI recently uh, held an event that was called the... Uh, OpenAI 5 benchmark. What's the significance of the uh, this benchmark and OpenAI 5? Sure. So we've been, so actually I should probably maybe give you a little bit of a timeline of what we've been going through so far. So last year we had our 1v1 bot and it beat some of the top players in the world at 1v1. But as uh, many Dota player no, players know, 1v1 has a restricted set of rules uh, it's only like kill the first tower. It's only mid lane. Um, basically it's a, it's a much simpler game. And so in order to really do Dota and really do the full complexity of the game, you have to do five V five with five players on each side. So that was last year. And this last year we've been working really hard to, you know, bring you open a five as it is today. And having five instead of one presents a lot more challenges than just adding four more bots. We had a lot, as I said before, like the new game features. Going back to this last May, we had an in-house team, and they were still, I mean, they're pretty good, and probably average players were able to beat our OpenAI 5. And then in June, our OpenAI 5 was able to beat our in-house team. And so we're like, well, now what do we do, right? How do we figure out how good the our OpenAI 5 is? We don't have a way of knowing. So... We found some high, you know, some very stronger test teams to test out OpenAI 5, and they were also winning. The OpenAI 5 was winning. So now we're like, well, now what do we do, right? We need to find, how do you, how do you, like, for something that you can't measure in a scripted way, something this complex, how do you do the next thing? So that's the point of the benchmark match, was to get some, you know, 99.95% percentile players and have them play OpenAI 5 to see how good is it? Like, where are we? What do we need to do for TI? And TI is the big competition at the end of August. It's coming up in a couple weeks. Um, it's called the International, and Dota players from around the world get together to compete. There's this large prize pool at the end, but the thing that we really want to know is, you know, is self-play, does it work? Or do you have this thing we call strategy collapse, where it learns only one strategy, can't recover. It's it's a really interesting problem, and I feel like the only way we can know if it's actually learning well is if by testing against these really strong teams. 
And now this prize pool for the TI, that's like $30 million or something like that? Something like that. I'm not too uh, connected with the specifics, but yes, it's a pretty big prize pool. I vaguely remember from last year's uh, 1v1 work around Dota that there was some controversy. Uh, do you recall what that was? Uh, I maybe a few more details than that. I mean, uh, I, I remember there was um, dig into it in a lot of detail, but I recall at around the time that OpenAI published its 1v1 results, there were. I guess the usual questions around kind of the applicability and the generality of the results, whether the system had, you know, some things that were, you know, hard coded or, or, you know, rules that were baked in versus purely learned, whether, you know, it had access to more or better information than a human might have, that kind of thing. So I was not working here last year, but I can at least answer questions about um, specifically, does it have better information than a human? Um, and the answer right there is just uh, it doesn't have any extra information. And if anything, it actually has less. Uh, we get all the information we get, we get from the official API, which gives us information of like where the hero is and what are your abilities that are available and can you use those abilities? Um, and there's, in fact, one of the things we've realized is that as we've been adding more features, the, you know, OpenAI 5 has actually been doing really well, even when it doesn't have any vision into certain things like for a long time it didn't see avoidance zones and it actually sort of did okay it's a lot better now that it can see them but didn't see what oh sorry so there are these um things called avoidance zones um one example is there's a character they call them a heroes um called sniper who has this ability called that's called uh shrapnel and it's basically this area of effect spell that gives damage if you walk into it and because OpenAI 5 didn't know where they were, they would walk in the middle and be like, I'm taking damage, now what? And just kind of stand there and take it. So um, in some cases, it started to sort of learn how to get out of it, uh, but it was a lot better when it had a map around itself indicating where it was so it knew how to get out. So, but, so, but the thing is, even, is, even without that, it still was doing pretty well against our in-house team. So there's there's nothing that it had no information it has extra the one advantage it does have and I think this is just because you know you do have the API you do have all the observations up front um, you like humans have to check other you know other heroes manually they have to do that switching and pro players are very fast at it but like they do have there's that delay of like switching on the, on the thing whereas OpenAI five just can access it you know as it comes in. So, um, but it can't react instantly. That's another thing uh, I think some people have been talking about. Uh, so originally when we were doing this, we, uh, we do this thing called frame skip. The idea is that like there's 30 frames a second and we could take an action on every frame, but it actually makes training super difficult, too long to do. So we, do, we take an action every four frames and then collect an observation, create an action. Um, the problem with that is that means that your reaction time is around 80 milliseconds, which seems unfair compared to even top humans. So um, we actually slowed it down, although it, I have to admit it wasn't because necessarily we were ready to take that step of um, you know, making it even. We were just trying to speed up training because the forward pass time 
took so much time and doing the game time took so much time, made a lot more sense to offset our actions. So it is now closer to 200 milliseconds reaction time, which is closer to humans. I think a lot more fair, but other like other than that, other than the fact that it does get all the observations at once, it it's then also the other thing too is it like the time to think is very different, right? Even if you have you see an observation and it's not till 200 milliseconds later you can respond to it. Uh, you know, OpenAI five doesn't need time to think like a human does. A human, it's not just about knee jerk reaction time. It's also about the thinking time. And you know, depending on how good you are, it might be like involuntary or not. And that's another thing that humans don't like the, the OpenAI 5 doesn't really, there's not a good way. I mean, we could delay them, but it's just a disadvantage humans just naturally have. Uh, so you've mentioned some things like shrapnel and, and some aspects of the, the heroes. Uh, it, it's kind of making me want to take a step back and talk about some you know nuances or details of the game that might help. Again, those of us who aren't really familiar with it, fully understand, uh, or at least not fully understand, but at least get a sense of, you know, what gameplay is like. Uh, so the, the standard game is five by five, or is it a a game that you would have, you know, unlimited number of people playing simultaneously? Yeah. So the standard game is five by five and, um, again, you can, you can play one V one, but yes, that is a standard game. Sorry, so I should probably give a little more context about the game. So there are, I think, a hundred and hundred something heroes. I think it's oh, it's over 110, I think. And each of these heroes has, you know, like at least four abilities that they have. They each have a slightly different effect than every other ability. Uh, some of them are similar, but some of them are very different. And that's part of the reason that for OpenAI 5 right now, we have a limited hero set. Um, it's actually not because that we didn't don't want the you know, opening five to train on it. It's mainly just because there's just so many things to represent that like we have to do manual effort every single time we input a new feature to the model. And that is really where a lot of the complexity of this project um, exists is just in like, how do you, you know, coerce all of these API inputs into something that this, you know, the LSTM can understand. So um, that's part of it. The other part of it, too, is that um, I think I mentioned this a little bit before that, you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of items and each of these items, there's probably like 100 plus items, something like that. I, don't go me on that number. <laughs> I have not played Dota enough to know exactly, but there are a bunch of items that the that you know, have each have their own effect and their own caveats and everything. There's also other actions. There's an action called scan where you can point to the map. You can only use it every three minutes and it will tell you, oh, is there, a, you know, an enemy in this area? There are uh, things called wards and they give you vision. They also can give you, in, like, uh, they call also call them sentry uh, wards and they give you vision over invisible units. So there are a number of items, items that can make you invisible, but... So you need these other type of wards to see the invisible units. Um, there's other items that can also help you with that. So there's like every single aspect of the game has either an item or an ability that you can you can um, change it with. And it and there's also a bunch of complex rules. Like there's this thing called backdoor protection, which means that your towers will start healing if you try to just rush at them at the enemy's towers. 
because they want to make sure that everything is even and fair so that like you actually have to have your little minions with you in order to actually get far enough to um, attack the other, other the enemy's towers. It's because otherwise people would just try to like, you know, surge and run towards the ancient and just kill the ancient. And that, that wouldn't be a very interesting game. Like the game developers valve has done a very good job of keeping it balanced and interesting. Um, and then I also mentioned the fog of war before, which covers the enemy's map. And even what you can see, you have this circle around your hero that um, is in, influenced by trees and other items in the I mean, other like obstructions in the map that you can't see around. So, like, all these things come together to really make it a complex, interesting game. And you mentioned that OpenAI currently supports a subset of the full number of heroes. How, how many heroes does it support? And I'm assuming that there are some limitations uh, as a result of that in the 5x5 matches. Like, I think I read somewhere that the it's in like a mirror mode, like both teams are playing the same five heroes or is that right? So that's yes. So we, we used to do mirror mode and uh, recently we've worked on a way to um, make it so they can play multiple, uh, multiple sets of heroes. And we really did that with just adding this embedding that says, okay, this is the hero you're playing right now so that the model can, can know, Oh, I see. I have this thing. Now I use this different ability instead, or is basically is aware of the different abilities it has to use. So yes, we have 18 heroes now. It doesn't have to be a mirror match. And, um, as you, as if anyone was watching the benchmark saw, we actually introduced drafting as well. And, um, the drafting is super interesting because, uh, our opening five picks the, the heroes in the order that it thinks will have, um, best chance of success. So, and, and again, it's based on the strategies it has learned. Uh, and so what specifically is drafting? Uh, so drafting is picking the set of heroes you want to use on your team. So from the 18 heroes, the two teams, so each side, one side's called Radiant, the other one's called Dire. Um, the two teams uh, go back and forth picking heroes. There's actually a setup where, you know, uh, usually Radiant picks first and then Dire picks two heroes and then Radiant picks two heroes, but... Those are just the specifics. The idea is that you just you get you get a chance to pick heroes that you want on your team, and uh, that way it's not just a mirror match. Everyone has the same the same heroes, and uh, yeah, it's just it's it just we're trying very hard to make this as you know real Dota as we can because we want it to be like a honest evaluation of you know this research project. We wanted to show like, can, can you actually make something superhuman for something that's more complex than games that we've already solved? So you've mentioned a few technical topics, uh, so far, reinforcement learning, uh, was one embeddings were another. Can you talk a little bit about the technology that underlies the open AI five? For sure. So basically our model is just one enormous LSTM. And the rest of the complexity is just coercing these Dota API inputs into something that the LSTM can process. Um, we have a, this uh, model architecture diagram that's kind of overwhelming, but it's just there's just so much to observe in the game. So the different modifiers that are get applied, uh, the different abilities that you I mean, abilities that you have, and also the, what items you have in your backpack, but um, when it comes down to it, we have all these inputs. We try to put them in 
reasonable representations. One thing that I've worked on recently, I mentioned the avoidance zones before, is uh, making embedding for the avoidance zones. So the idea is that there are, before it didn't really matter if we just say, hey, there's an avoidance zone here, just stay away because we were doing the mirror match and there were only two avoidance zones. Um, now that we have 18 heroes, uh, there can be more. So what we want to do is actually tell it, okay, which type of, of avoidance zone are you dealing with? Because you might want to step out of it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you'd rather like take it so that you can, and you, cause you know how much damage you'll take so you can get to this other goal. And, uh, that's basically implemented as a map around the, uh, around the hero itself. And it just see different cells are, um, have the embedding type in them. So how does the map get translated into an embedding? Oh, so, well, it's, it's literally like an eight by eight grid around the hero. And we, within, if we see, oh, the avoidance zone covers this cell, you know, just by like, you know, distance detection from the center of the avoidance zone, um, we say, okay, this one is this type. And then uh, we put it through the embedding and then feed it into the LSTM. So folks that are listening that have been following along with the fast AI course with us, we've been doing a study group uh, around this fast AI practical deep learning course and embeddings has uh, figured pretty prominently in that course um, as a way for us to capture a pretty broad variety of um, characteristics about different entities into deep learning models. So it's interesting to hear that they play so prominently in the, the Dota model as well. Oh, for sure. And we, we use them for, I mean, if, if, if I could I show you the diagram, but like they are across the board here because there's just so many things that have different types. Like there are, I don't know, a couple, several hundred modifiers and modifiers are ways of knowing if there's a spell cast on you or something, something like that. Or if there's an ability that you're using, there's so many different things that have different types. So it's, it's absolutely essential that so many things go through embeddings. And so the embeddings, are you, are you training the embeddings uh, separately or are you training all of this end to end? It's all end to end. And so you've got this gigantic LSTM. I think I read it was like 1,024 units. Is that still accurate? Uh, I think, uh, you know, that's been changing so much. I think we might have, it's actually 2048 now. Uh, because I think that 20, the 1024 was for our 1v1. And so we okay. figured we should probably raise it for five heroes. And is the, are the steps in the, the units in the LSTM, are those uh, time steps in the game, like frames, or are they some other uh, unit? For each time step, we have um, all of these different inputs. I've not worked on that specific section, but... Um, the time step we look at right now, I actually do not remember what, I think it's like 16. It changes based on like if we're doing local training or not, but I believe in when we're doing training for an experiment, we're looking at 16 time steps at a time. And uh, that's with the frame skip. Okay. So that would be like, I guess, two seconds, something like that. You mentioned that you do a lot of different types of transformations to that a big part of the challenge here is figuring out how to feed information into uh, these LSTMs. Sounds like a big part of that is using embeddings, but are there some other things that you're doing to 
in, in terms of representations for uh, making all of this tractable? Sure. So, I mean, besides embeddings, um, well, so another thing that I've, I've worked on recently is adding a mini map. So this is a part of the game that uh, everyone, all the humans get to see and uh, OpenAI 5 never got to see. And it's just this high level view of like what vision you have, where the enemy units are, things like that. And the way we handled this, because we couldn't talk to the client code, is uh, just trying to recreate the vision. So what we have is this uh, input. We start out with this large grid. It's um, 260 by 260. And we, we draw all of where all the vision is on the map. So you get vision from towers, from heroes, and we overlay it. And so you've got this one nice vision channel. And then we, we add other channels, like, oh, here's where your heroes are. And another channel for where your wards are, and another channel, you know, for all these things. Um, a channel for, um, you know, um, your creeps, the the minions. So we we add all these up, and then we actually put that through a confnet to um, for the model to understand. And so far, it has been helping with um, ward placement, or, or so we think. It's hard. Ward placement is really hard to figure out because it's a it's something that requires a lot of strategy. And not every single ward placement makes sense for every single part of the game. What's a ward? So, oh, sorry. So the ward is something that gives you vision. Remember, because like the entire map is covered okay. with a war. So, um, uh, so what you really want to like, you can't evaluate. That's the thing that makes this really complex. Is that it's hard to evaluate good behavior. Um, a lot of this behavior we can't see till really late in the game. So, I mean, again, for the for the ward placement, like it's. I mean, sorry, by late in the game, I don't mean in this actual game. I mean late in training. Like, okay. And that's something we actually don't have a lot of, um, without comparing two uh, agents that are similar skill levels, it's hard to tell, like, are you doing this well or not? And that's part of the reason we had the show match. But uh, we have a scripted bot we made a year ago that, you know, does okay. I think it beats me pretty consistently. But um, and an average player would probably be able to beat it. Because you can't you can't script these complex behaviors that well. That's the thing we ran into first. Is you just you can't create a you know a set of you know the OpenAI five with just scripting. You have to have something else that's learning that knows can figure out these complex strategies because they you can't you just you can't code them up. You mentioned um, I guess what I think of as kind of a reward attribution type of a problem, meaning things happen in the game and uh, if you're just measuring the agent's uh, progress on wins and loses, uh, you you don't really know until late in training. Um, But I read something about how there's been some experimentation with uh, that binary type of award relative to more incremental uh, types of awards. So looking at, you know, kills and hits and things like that. Specifically, some experiments that were done comparing like sparse rewards versus dense rewards. So yeah, this is something actually that interestingly enough, we've, we have been, we have been doing some research on. So uh, it, when we first started doing one V one bot, one of the things that we really wanted it to learn was creep blocking. And it's the idea that just statistically, if your creeps end up in the middle of the map, sorry, slightly over middle of the map, uh, like into the enemy's territory, the enemy can start taking those creeps and killing them faster. Um, And you tend to statistically do worse. And so 
a lot of people tend to creep block at the beginning of a game where they'll they'll stand in front of their creeps and prevent them from running to the beginning of the map. And so if your opponent is not doing that, um, what they'll they will end up getting your their creeps on your side. Your tower will try to take them out, and you generally do better that way. Um, they couldn't even with all the training they did. They never saw this happen for one v one, so they had to do this shaped reward, basically you know give a reward for blocking the creeps. Um, so, however, when we did let it run longer, and this was, I think, earlier this year, we actually did start seeing a little bit of that behavior. So, um, I think when it comes to sparse or dense reward, and this is, again, this is just off of some of the experience we've seen, you can sometimes see these, like, bet these good behaviors that you could get out of a dense reward, um, but you have to give it a lot more training time. And so it's, it's really as a trade-off of, like, how much... Like, how much training time do you need to give it? So we do give rewards for kills and things like that. But, um, you know, in taking towers, you get the you get the gold reward. And, like, you have to do that. Otherwise, it would just I think it would just take too long to see any good results. Um, it, it's sort of interesting uh, effect of this. And uh, we saw actually in the the recent benchmark is the third game. And I, I, one of the things that happened is the the. <laughs> the crowd picked the draft, and so the draft was terrible for opening I-5. Absolutely terrible. It predicted a 2.9% chance of winning, uh, which is pretty abysmal. So um, it did lose, but the interesting thing was is that we started to see these behaviors where the heroes would sacrifice themselves to take a tower, which is kind of strange. Like, why are you changing your behavior so much to do something like taking out of tower? And what we realized is that we've had we've kept the rewards, um, you know, symmetric. You know, if you win, you get one. If you lose, you get negative one. And but as you know, standard IRL practice, you generally have you know this gamma term that um, is your horizon, right? And so um, you generally discount the rewards, um, positive and negative. And so if you think you're going to win. It makes sense. You're going to try to drag that game out as long as you can to make sure that that penalty is low as possible. So <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's kind of hilarious. And this is what we saw. So now we're like, well, now now some of that behavior makes sense. You sacrifice yourself because if the tower is down, then there's more time in the game because now the enemy team's going to have to work harder to keep it balanced. Um, even if you eventually lose, you're like, well, okay, well, now I you know, got a much smaller penalty um but it's hard because you don't want the two teams collaborating right you, you like right, in general right. asymmetric awards are not good um and we did try a little experiment so far trying to see how that works but like um it's tricky it's really tricky to try to get these things right yes you end up with a lot of possibilities for unintended consequences and things that unfurl in in unexpected ways i would think oh yeah i mean it's it's just so many tweaking i think that's and that's the reason we're doing the research, right, is to figure all these things out. But even like a few weeks ago, we were talking about how just changing our learning rate. We're just like, hey, why don't we explore you know, experiment with a lower learning rate? And oh, guess what? That helps. Like there's just there's so many. You know, it's too, <laughs> too bad we can't have the opening of five figure out how to do all these things. Right. Um, <laughs> You've talked quite a bit about uh, reinforcement learning and some of the papers that I've seen referred to in the context of the OpenAI 5 um, and the previous versions were PPO and Rainbow and Observe and Look Further. Do you, uh, can you talk a little bit about 
the roles that each of these plays and, and how they're used in the kind of the training regime? Sure. So we basically use a pretty scaled out version of PPO. We have our training um, uh, setup we call, I guess it's t- training framework we call RAPID that allows us to scale out a lot of, you know, like all of this training. Because as you know, with reinforcement learning, you need lots and lots of samples. So uh, we have, I think in our recent uh, blog post, we were talking about how we have 180 days 180, sorry, years of training every single day. And that's because we're running all of these games in parallel. Um, So, yeah, so, and again, it's just, it's basically scaled up PPO. One of our our recent experiment had, so our recent large experiment that we used for the benchmark had 80,000 CPUs and 1,000 GPUs. And about half of those were optimizers. The other half were just doing rollouts. And we also have infrastructure for doing evaluations so that we have like this giant tensor board that tells us like how everything's going. We look at sample reuse. We look at the, you know, the mean reward. We look at all these different uh, aspects of the training to figure out like, is this going well for us? Is it not? Like, what can we tweak? What can we not tweak? Um, it's a really great um, framework for running experiments. And we use it in other teams at OpenAI as well. So there are two different types of nodes. One was for updates and the other was for something else. What were those two? So part of what Rapid does is it does, it handles a lot of like the scaling out. We have a whole, you know, different clusters and machines that are used for the whole training process. And one of those are the optimizers. The optimizers handle all the backprop, um, you know, ex, you know, <laughs> taking the new parameters, spreading them out to the machines again, uh, combining the parameters and then the other half of the machines, for the most part, are the rollouts. And we, we have both uh, GPU rollouts and non-GPU rollouts. because um, you. So it's basically if you want your, as you're running the game, doing your forward passes, do you want, do you want it to be run on GPU? And recently we've made that infrastructure change so that it can run on GPU. And that does help us um, not, not as much speed up training, except when we've made the model a sufficient size, then it actually is faster to run it on a GPU. And so uh, what is a rollout specifically? Oh, yeah. So rollout, rollout is just uh, playing the game, right? So it's creating samples. Um, so okay. we have all, all these machines that are creating samples, playing the game, you know, seeing here's an observation, here's the, you know, here's the next observation, next action, here's your action. And then all that gets packaged up and sent to the optimizers. And, um, and then we also have a bunch of machines that do evaluations. And so they, what they will do is, you know, take a snapshot of the parameters and play again against our scripted bot, and then it will report the results. Of course, those that's usually only useful for the very early part of training because, again, the scripted bot can only do so much. Um, so it's used for new experiments, but later on we have this other piece of instru- infrastructure we call scoreboard where we can snapshot parameters, play it against other snapshots, and f- see how they compare. And that's really how we decide, you know, coming up to a match if... Like what is really the best of something because otherwise you just can't tell. And at a certain point, like even with all these snapshots, we still need humans to evaluate because there are, there are probably, as I said, I mentioned this early before very quickly, um, the problem of strategy collapse is what we've been calling it, where your OpenAI 5 might be learning only a small handful of strategies and maybe not learning everything, just hasn't practiced that. Say you have five different models that, you know, come from five different training iterations. 
could each of those play a different hero on the same, you know, in the same game on the same team? You could do that. Uh, it would require extra infrastructure work. Um, right now, we're just sort of doing all of them in parallel with the same brain. So they all do have the same brain. We're just uh, giving them different inputs and running all of the forward passes in parallel. You've got these brains that you train for the, the heroes. They use these embeddings so that they can, you know, the brain can control any of the heroes that uh, OpenAI 5 supports uh, at a given time. And then it sounds like you play different versions, one against the other, to determine which ones are best. How long do you play them against? Is it a certain number of games or a certain number of quote unquote years, uh, days of play? Uh, to assess, you know, a given model versus uh, against another model? So the way our score, scoreboard is set up right now is that um, it will try to find the, like, most recent uh, agent that's been uploaded and play it against other ones that have the same environment. Environment just basically means, like, um, we can set up an environment so it's just like like sniper versus sniper, in which we've done a lot of tests for that. Um, and then more recently, we've had the ones where we have um, our 18 hero set. So scoreboard looks around and says, okay, like who are the new agents and tries to, you know, bias it so they get the most uh, new games. But then other other agents like also get games. I think it tops out around, thing, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but something around maybe like 10,000 games, it'll start to ignore you entirely. Because um, it's like, well, we've established what your skill level is. Um, but other ones, yeah, it's, it's just basically on a need basis, um, depending on the, on the, cause so many people are constantly uploading things for their individual experiment because once you get past the scripted bot, you can't really tell very well. Okay. So it's kind of like a CICD system. You create this model, you experiment with it, and then you upload it into this testing infrastructure that basically just pits it against other models and determine how's it, how it fares against them. Mm-hmm. Maybe jumping ahead to the uh, the actual benchmark match, can you give us the the highlights of the benchmark match? First of all, what were the results? Yeah, so the results of the benchmark Mac match were the first two games, uh, OpenAI five won against the humans, and just one thing you have to understand, like these humans have played for ten thousand hours against this game. These people are very good at what they do. Um, the Players we had at the game were like were some were previous pros, but um, are casters. But they understand the game so well that they're able to talk to other people about it, and I think that's really a great demonstration of how well they know it. So they're they're excellent, 99.95 percent percentile players, and they lost the first two games. And the only reason they well not the only reason, but I think the biggest reason they won the last game was because of this um, adversarial drafting that um, our audience and Twitch chat were able to assist with. Um, so, so that's the that's the big thing. And the I think it's not as much. There's there's a couple things with the drafting results. Uh, I mean, so the first ones for the first few minutes of the first two games, it was tracking pretty even. But that's how most games go. You don't really know if you're winning or not, even if things are even. Like. Uh, OpenAI 5 got a kill, they got a kill, it was sort of even, but then things changed because then OpenAI 5 starts pushing, and they push their lanes, and pushing the lanes basically means going to the other side of the base and really trying to um, take the other side. So 
and even humans had to sacrifice a lot to get some of their first towers. And so even though they were getting the towers, it didn't mean that they were really ahead because they had to sacrifice so much. And then after that, it just kind of went uphill for OpenAI 5. The fact that the, the game opens up late in the game, is it have to do with that OpenAI has kind of figured out some the right time to start pushing? Or is it, do you see like the culmination of some longer term strategy that OpenAI had been playing all along that, you know, either the humans were oblivious to or couldn't effectively counter or something like that? So I think it's both. And it's, it's again, because I think it's, this is actually a complex problem because, you know, a lot of I mean, a lot of professional games even will be pretty even at the beginning or even just amateur games. So having having advantage at the very beginning does not mean you'll have an advantage later in the game, but it can. It's it's sort of a hard answer. I think the other thing, how I was talking really about the asymmetric awards, we did start doing an experiment where we said, OK, fine, no penalties. Right. And the games do finish faster because they're trying to now maximize that reward. So it could be, I think it's a little of both. It's, you know, most games do start out even, but then also I think, you know, OpenAI 5 is motivated to, you know, make it a little longer than normal. Mm, Wear wear the humans down. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, So it's, yeah, it's, all these things, this is why I think after TI, certainly we'll be doing a lot more like ablation studies, things like that, to figure out exactly how much of a contribution each of these things make. Because right now we're just sort of rushing to the end, trying to make the best OpenAI5 we can. But we really want to understand more in depth how how each of these little knobs affects the performance. Are there any other observations that are... Uh, noteworthy coming out of the benchmark? I mean, certainly there are. What what were some of the main things that, you know, either the, the open AI team or the, the audience or the commentators observed about the way open AI had learned to play relative to uh, humans? Yeah. So um, I, uh, I don't know too much about specific strategies. I feel like you have to have a certain level of Dota understanding to really understand how these things work. One of the things the commentators did say is that um, they tend to go very much for pushing lanes, which means that like they'll just kind of go straight forward. There di- again, there are numerous valid strategies in Dota because it is a very complex game. Um, they tend to take on these more, um, I guess, uh, hard-fought strategies, like where you just kind of go for it in some cases, and they have the confidence to make it through most of the time. Um, not always, but they, and they also support each other. That's the other thing that we saw in the last even our turtle games is that we have this, this, uh, hyperparameter called team spirit. And what we do is, you know, if we turn it up, it's basically is like a shared reward. So if the higher it is, the more reward you get for some of your teammates kills rather than, um, just one of your kills. And, um, Interesting thing, so it's down at zero, they play terribly. And if it's a one, they play terribly. So there is a mid-ground where you have to be a little bit selfish, but also care about your teammates enough to go help them when they're dying. But it does. it is interesting. They seem to play more collaboratively than humans at times, um, seem to care about each other a little more. Um, so I think that is part of the reason that they have done so well. Now you mentioned, or I saw in uh, a video somewhere, one of the commentators 
was talking about some strategy that he observed the bots playing. I think it was something like keeping the center of the board clear or something to that effect that, you know, it took him eight years to figure out or, or something. Uh, yeah. So in our first, um, I think, so we had a, we published a video in a blog post a little while back and one of the interesting things about the Dota board is that it's uh, not symmetrical. So, I mean, it's sort of symmetrical, but there are some different parts. And so what Blitz, who was uh, commentating that those games, was saying is that um, there are, like, so bottom, the bottom towers on the Radiant side are surrounded by forests. So it's actually really hard to defend those towers. And so his advice is, like, if you're playing Radiant, don't even bother just let them take those towers because you have a much better chance of taking out the enemy and your mid towers and your top towers if you're radiant. Um, so it just he's just said that it's like it's very hard to defend the ones in in the in the weeds. Um, so again, there again, there's a lot of um, a lot of strategies there, and it's I, I think the kind of the questions you're asking me is like, well, what are these high level strategies? It's part of the reason we had these very uh, well-practiced humans come look at these things because these are things that a lot of us just as, you know, as machine learning engineers and researchers, we can't spot ourselves um, because it just it requires so many hours of gameplay that we haven't, we haven't done yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe to wrap up, can you talk a little bit about the, how this fits into the the broader landscape of projects at OpenAI. Uh, you mentioned that the next big challenge is uh, TI. Is this OpenAI five allowed to compete in TI, like for the 30, 40 million, or is it just a, a milestone? Or are you planning some uh, some additional benchmarking kind of there? Yeah, so uh, we're just doing this for. I mean, again, OpenAI is a research organization, so. Um, we're not, we're not planning on being part of the human pool, uh, as we're not entering a human. Uh, but I think the main thing for us is really just to see how well we can get OpenAI5 to work. That's our main and only goal is really to see, can we get superhuman performance from reinforcement learning and self-play? Well, Christy, thanks so much for taking the time to explain all this complicated stuff to us and help us understand what OpenAI is doing and uh, why you're all so excited about the OpenAI 5 playing Dota. Great. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Christy or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimmelaicom slash talk slash 176. If you're a fan of the podcast, we'd like to encourage you to head to your Apple or Google podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews help inspire us to create more and better content, and they help new listeners find and enjoy the show. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.